Now we find that our Lord continues his ministry here in chapter 8. It came to pass after that he went throughout every city and village, and that's in Galilee, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Now, this reveals that there were many that were turning to Christ in that day, and many who were officials in high places. Now, we have here the parable of the sower. And in view of the fact that I looked at that so thoroughly in Matthew, and then I took it up again in Mark, and I have a little book entitled Some Seed, and I would make that available to those who support the program if you'd like to have it. I'm going to pass over that since we have dealt with it quite completely before. We have the parable of the lighted candle, and we have that new relationship that he talked about when his mother and brethren came, and he said to be saved, to be brought in as a son of God, is actually to be closer related to him than his own human mother was. And then we have him stilling the waves. All of that is here in Luke, and we've dealt with that rather thoroughly. But now we come also to the trip that he made over to Gadara, where there was this maniac who was possessed with demons. And since we're dealing with Dr. Luke, and I'd like for Dr. Luke probably to go into this a little more thoroughly than maybe some others have. And will you notice it? Verse 26, "...and they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had demons long time and wore no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs." Apparently there were two of them. Luke only lifts out one And I think he does it for a very definite purpose. Why? He's a doctor. He's attempting to just give you an illustration here. Now, this matter of demons, there are those that think it belongs to the category of ghosts, goblins, and gnomes, are sylvan satyrs and stygians, shades and fairies and fables, and that they inhabit the never-never land, some Alice in Wonderland way out yonder, and they dwell on some mythical Shangri-La. The average Christian viewpoint is that if demons ever existed, they do not exist today. I believe that we're seeing a manifestation and a resurgence of demon possession in our day. It's very hard to explain what's taking place in our contemporary society without it. Now, we notice here that Dr. Luke treats demonism with remarkable insight from a doctor's viewpoint, and it's rather scientific. Matthew's record was a matter of fact. Mark's was actually emotional and spectacular. But now will you notice what our Lord does here when he arrives? The first miracle that was recorded by Luke way back in the fourth chapter had to do with demon possession. And there we had another reference in the 41st verse of the fourth chapter. And he made it clear that demonism and diseases are different. 
Demon possession is a reality. It's just as real as cancer or leprosy. And it disturbs man physically, mentally, and spiritually. And it can destroy the soul of man. It can be the eternal doom of man. And we'll find out in the next chapter that demons are synonymous with unclean spirits. This is one of the worst cases. And that's the one we're looking at here. Now, will you notice some of the facts that we need to deal with here? And I'd just like to pull them out. It was the country of Gadara, the tribe of Gad. They didn't cross over with Joshua when they should have. And will you notice what he says here, giving the value of this incident? He says to this man, "'Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee.'" And that's the purpose of it, the value of it. Now, will you notice certain things concerning this? This man had been this way a long time. It's probably the worst case. He wore no clothes. He was in the nude. I think nudity and demon possession, there is a relationship. He didn't dwell in a house. He dwelt among the tombs, caves. He was a cave man, by the way. And the personality of this man was degraded and debased and destroyed. He had no will of his own. He was in the possession of the demon. Then we read verse 28, "...when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice, and he said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not." He recognized Jesus. Demons believe and tremble, the apostle says. They are the enemies of God, and they are to be judged. What's their origin? I do not want to be dogmatic. The physical world has something in it that's not revealed. And that was the Adam. How many of you have ever seen an Adam? Yet that Adam has really made his impact on our day and generation. And in the spiritual world, there are certain things not revealed, angels. And there are two classes of angels, those that are with God and those that fell with Satan at the beginning. And we're told that Gentiles sacrifice to demons. There is demon worship. Homer speaks of diamonds and theos, that is, God and demons as being synonymous. And Hesiod says demons are all good. Empedocles in Greek philosophy, he says they're both good and bad. And back of idolatry in the ancient religions, there was demonism. I can't go into detail in a study like this. But there's an outbreak when Christ came, that modern cults, I think many of them have reality in them. They have the doctrine of demons. Now, demons control the man, but man just couldn't do what he wanted to do. And demons caused the person to do frightful and terrifying things. His soul, he did soul-destroying acts. It causes mothers to kill their children, husbands to kill their wives, children to kill their parents. Senseless acts do not know why they do it. That's coming up so much in our day. And Jesus asked him, verse 30, What's thy name? And he said, Legion, because many demons were entered into him. And not one, but many, legion, three to six thousand in a Roman legion, three thousand to six thousand. 
And it was used like the word mob. A mob was in this man. And we're told, and they besought him that he would not command them to go into the deep. And that deep is the bottomless pit, the abyss. And that's where the other fallen angels were incarcerated. Jude tells us that. And they want to be incarnate in a person. When demon is gone out of a man, he'll wander around, but he'll come back, our Lord said. And they were willing to go into pigs rather than into the abyss. And the pigs would rather be dead than have the demons. And there was a marvelous transformation took place in this man. Then they went out, verse 35, they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the demons were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Marvelous transformation. And friends, only Christ can deliver from the power of Satan. There are many things today. Is there demonism today? Yes. I don't have time to develop that at all, but I think we're seeing the resurgence of it in our day, and it's a frightful, ugly thing as it's appearing. Now we have, concluding this chapter, that woman with the issue of blood was healed and Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. It's interesting. Dr. Luke gives us two resurrections. That's quite interesting. The other gospel writer's only one. You see, he's Dr. Luke, if you please. And he gives us that incident here. And I'll not go into detail concerning it since we've done it already twice in Matthew and in Mark. Then as we come to chapter 9, we notice that everything in this chapter is recorded in the other gospels. That is, in the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark. And we've looked at practically everything in that chapter And I'm going to go over it rather hurriedly. And the reason for that is that I hope in chapter 10 to get to the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's brand new. Only Luke gives us that parable. And I want to spend a little time with it so we go over quickly ground that we've covered heretofore. Now, as we come to chapter 9, the first thing that we have here. The twelve were sent forth to preach. Now, you remember Matthew, after the Lord had enunciated his ethic and then demonstrated the dynamic by the fact that he performed miracles in every area of life, in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, in the natural realm, and in the supernatural realm. We've had that already in Luke, by the way. Now he sends his disciples forth, and I'll just read a few of the verses here. Verse 1, Luke 9, "...then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases." Now, I would like to say this very carefully, that when our Lord was here on earth, He gave the gift of healing to his apostles. They were signed gifts. They were to demonstrate that he is who he claimed to be. And when the church got underway, you see, there was no Scripture at the very beginning. And the sign of an apostle was the fact that he had the signed gifts. 
Peter could heal the sick, and he could raise the dead, by the way. And Paul could heal the sick, and by the way, he could raise the dead. Have you ever met any of them today that are faith healers that are raising the dead? If you hear one, let me know. Now, I know they claim to do it, but they haven't been able to demonstrate it yet. I heard of several instances that turned up to be quite phony when they were examined rather carefully. Now, we have here in this chapter the fact these men were sent out and they were given these signed gifts. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, that was the 70 and was in that day before he died upon the cross. Now, you don't find him sending them out to heal as being the important thing today. You find that even though Paul had the gift of healing toward the end of his ministry, he apparently didn't exercise it at all. He told Timothy to take wine for his tummy's sake, and he himself had a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to remove it. God didn't remove it. Apparently, that was a gift that even before the apostles had passed off the scene was one that as soon as we have the Scripture, the authority moves from a person to the page of Scripture, the Word of God. And John could write in his day, you will recall, toward the end of his life, he said, "...if any come to you not having this doctrine..." And the man might come being able to bring down fire from heaven. But if he didn't have the doctrine, and Paul says, "...if an angel from heaven..." preach any other gospel than we preached unto you, let him be anathema. That is, let him be damned. It's pretty strong language, by the way, but that's what he said. Now will you notice, he said unto them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And by the way, when anyone quotes this verse to you, and says that so-and-so uses this verse. He preaches the kingdom of God, and he heals the sick. Let's find out whether he ever takes up an offering or not, whether he takes nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip. It's quite interesting. This verse is not used very often, is it? But in that day it was used, friends. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And don't misunderstand me, because I believe that the laborer is worthy of his hire. I feel that any man who's giving out the Word of God should be supported. I don't care who he is if he's giving out the Word of God. And that is something God's people need to recognize, and I believe that with all my heart. But back there, this was a different situation, as you can see. He says, "...into whatsoever house ye enter..." into there abide and thence depart. That is, go in and stay there. In other words, in that day, they didn't have a holiday motel or a Howard Johnson or a Ramada Inn or a Hilton Hotel. They entertained in their homes. And then we find out, "...whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the dust from your feet for a testimony against them." And we find here a very unusual thing. It's recorded at verse 7. 
Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them. Now you'll find here that he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. Now, you'll recall that the difference we made between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is all-inclusive. Everything is in it. The kingdom of heaven is in the kingdom of God, but they're not synonymous. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of the heavens over the earth. The kingdom of God includes not only this earth, but all of God's creation. Now, we are told that he fed the 5,000. I've been over that now twice, and I'll pass that by. We have Peter's confession of Christ here, and we have handled that before. And then we find that the Lord Jesus now, here in verse 22, tells of his death and resurrection, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain, and be raised the third day. Now, again and again, he made that statement. Now, the place that I'd like to dwell today for just a few moments is right here with the transfiguration. Now, I've dealt with that before, but I'd like for us to see it from Dr. Luke's viewpoint here, because Dr. Luke has a way of adding something that others leave out. Verse 27, "...but I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God." Now, it's quite interesting to note that Simon Peter interprets that for us. He said that he saw the kingdom. When did you see it, Simon Peter? Well, he said we were with him on the holy mount. And he says that we were eyewitnesses of it. Uh, let me turn and read that, just in case you might miss it. It's Second Peter 1, verse 16. He says, "...we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory." When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, he makes it very clear here. Simon Peter says, We were eyewitnesses, and we saw the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, Simon Peter, when did you see that, by the way? Well, he says, when he was with him on the holy mount, he says, "...and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount." 
That's the explanation Simon Peter gives, and that's good enough for me because I think the man who was there ought to know more about it than some of these modern scholars who weren't there. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say here, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James, and he went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, was transfigured. Actually, that was that which takes place in a caterpillar. When the caterpillar, you remember, goes into a little cocoon, then comes out a beautiful butterfly. Now, that's the same word that's used for the transfiguration. And to me, the transfiguration does not set forth the deity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ. And here is the goal of humanity. When you see the Lord Jesus transfigured there on the mount, you're seeing exactly what is going to take place in that day when we are translated. The dead shall be raised, and those that are alive shall be changed, and we'll all be translated, brought into the presence of God. And I believe that that is the thing that took place here. As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, his raiment was white and glistering. And it doesn't mean that a light shone on it, but a light came from his body and shone outward. And I personally believe that Adam and Eve were clothed with this kind of a glory light. And when they sinned, why, that light left them and they knew they were naked. The question is, are you going to wear clothes in heaven? I don't know why that silly question has to be asked. Well, I think you will, but I don't think you'll need them because there'll be this glory light that will be a clothing in that day. And that is exactly what happened to our Lord. Verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. And here is Moses, the representative of the law, and Elijah, the representative of the prophets. And they're bearing witness to him, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what did they talk about? Moses talked about the death of Christ. Elijah talked about the death of Christ. And Paul says that the gospel that he preached was a gospel that both the law and the prophets bore a testimony to. It wasn't contrary to the Old Testament at all. He put it like this. He says that the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets revealed that the only way God could save was through the righteousness that you obtained by faith, and that that little sacrifice was brought. That was the very heart of the Mosaic system, was the sacrificial system. That little lamb that was offered on the altar speaks of Christ who died for our sins. And the prophet spoke of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, you see. Now, this is the transfiguration. And these men appeared there and spoke with him. Now, will you notice verse 32? But Peter and they that were with him 
were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Good old Simon Peter, he has to speak up, and he should have kept his mouth closed at this particular time. But here he speaks up, and he thinks he's saying something. Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, not knowing what he said. Now, what he said was he didn't know what he said. And a great many people are like that today. They speak pious words, but they don't know what they're saying. Now, this man suggests they build three tabernacles. And he puts Moses and Elijah on a par with Jesus, but he puts Jesus at the head of the list. And many anthologies of religion give the founders of religion. They put down Buddha, and they put down Muhammad, and they put down the other founders of religion, and then put down Moses, and then they put down Jesus. Now, Jesus is not the founder of any religion. That may seem strange to some of you. He didn't found a religion. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. He's a Savior. And today... Why, you're not saved by religion, you're saved by Christ. I remember hearing old Dr. Carroll say many times, he says, when I came to Christ, I lost my religion. And a great many people need to lose their religion and find Christ. Now we find out when they came down from the mount that there were the disciples there in the presence of a man who had this little child, and I looked at that before, and I emphasized that when we were in the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Lord Jesus, they're on the way to Jerusalem, and again he speaks of his death. He says that he's going to be delivered into the hands of man. That's verse 44. Now, in verse 51, let me read this. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So way up yonder in Caesarea Philippi, starting out, he begins now to move toward Jerusalem, and he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, not only did he send out these twelve men, and when they came back, they reported to him, and he took them aside for rest and prayer and instruction. We find out in chapter 10 that he also sent out 70. After these things, chapter 10 now, verse 1, after these things the Lord appointed other 70 also. Now, these are 70 beside the 12 apostles. And he sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, I want to say something that may seem strange to you, but I want to say it nonetheless. We hear a great deal today about pray the Lord of the harvest, send laborers into the harvest, and that he looked out on the fields and they were ripe unto harvest, and that today that's our business. Now, I want to be very careful, but will you hear me carefully? And the statement I want to make is this. 
I don't consider that my business is harvesting. My business is sowing. And if you've ever been a farmer or lived in the country like I have, you know there's a vast difference between sowing seed and harvesting the crop after the seed come up and mature. Well, may I say to you, I think today our business is sowing seed. Well, somebody says, but he said here, the harvest truly is great. But you must remember, friends, where he is. And he is on the other side of the cross at this time. And an age is coming to an end. And the end of every age ends in judgment. This age did. And an age that ends in judgment is a harvest. And the age itself is the sowing of seed. Now, I believe that we're sowing seed today. But we're told that at the end of the age, there is to be a harvest. Remember, he said that. Let both grow together to the end of the age. Then the great sower today who's sowing seed, he'll be the one to do the harvesting. My business is to sow the seed of the Word of God. I interpret that to be the business today of the Christian. Actually, my business is not to harvest. That's judgment. I'm not to judge anyone. I don't know your relationship to God. I can't see your heart. I don't know what your relationship is. But God sees it. God knows, and he's the one who'll judge. Now, my business is to sow the seed, get the Word of God out. I hope that you interpret your business as that, because if you do, you and I are partners in this tremendous enterprise of getting the Word of God out. Now, we find that we've come to the end of an age. Listen to him. Verse 13, "'Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in thee, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you.'" You see, he's at the end of an age. This is judgment we're talking about. Harvesting is judgment. Sowing seed is giving out the Word of God and preaching the gospel and trying to get people saved. I trust that I've made my point. Now we come to one of the things that characterize the gospel of Luke, and that, of course, are the parables. Dr. Luke majors in the parables where... We find Mark majoring in the miracles, and we find that Dr. Luke gives us certain parables that are probably the most familiar part of the Bible. I suppose that the Good Samaritan will stand along with the 23rd Psalm in the Old Testament and the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. It's certainly the best-known story everyone's heard about the Good Samaritan. I believe that it is still true that the literary critics consider it the greatest story that was ever told. And certainly we have to say it's the most popular and the most familiar parable that there is. It's the story of a man that fell among thieves and what happened to him. And our Lord gave it, of course, in a very brief compass. Now let me begin reading at verse 25, and this is preliminary to it and what called it forth from the lips of our Lord. 
And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, our Lord gives the parable, you see, an answer to a question. And we'll see the question is not an honest question, but it's a good question, and it's a stock question, by the way. And here we find a certain lawyer doesn't mean that he was a lawyer in the sense we think of it. He was acquainted with the Mosaic system, which was a legal system. And he was a certain lawyer in that sense, one who interpreted the Mosaic law. If you've noticed the two Gospels, they have certain human characteristics. Mark is rough on doctors. We saw that. You remember he said that that poor woman had spent all her living on doctors. Well, Luke doesn't say that she did that. Luke just says she couldn't be cured. But Dr. Luke, he's rough on lawyers. And here you have this lawyer that came. A story is told about two lawyers in court, and it was a very difficult case that was causing a great deal of controversy. And the court opened with one lawyer (laughs) jumping up and calling the other lawyer a liar, and the other one jumped up to retaliate and call the other lawyer a thief. And the judge rapped for silence, and he says, "'Now that the lawyers have identified themselves, we'll begin the case.'" Well, that's a story I'm sure Dr. Luke would have appreciated, but he wouldn't appreciate the one about the doctor, of course. And I do know a story about preachers, by the way, but I don't have time to tell that one, of course. Now we move on. He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And our Lord had a very wonderful way of dealing with questions. You know how he did it? He asked a question in return. He says, What's written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Now, he's a lawyer acquainted with the Mosaic system. He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, that was a straightforward answer, by the way, there. And he answered accurately. Our Lord answered him. He said unto him, verse 28, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. And I wonder if you notice the barb that's in that, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You can see he's certainly beating around the bush. You see, our Lord used this very unusual method. And by the way, it's known as the Socratic method. Socrates used it. Answer a question with a question. Let a man answer his own question. And so the lawyer put Christ on the witness stand, and Christ reversed the tables and put him on the witness stand. Now, the other side of the cross remembers where these men are. They were under law. They were under the dispensation of law. And the Lord Jesus referred him to the Mosaic law. And the lawyer wanted Christ to give an answer contrary to the law of courts. And so 
our Lord made it very clear that the law he picked out was the chief one. And he lifted out a passage from the Pentateuch. I'll not turn back to it, but you'd find it in Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. And then you'll notice our Lord said, you've answered right. And again, we're before the cross, but they're under the shadow of it. And I'm bold enough to say to you today, friends on radio, if you will keep this, you will have eternal life. Well, somebody said, I thought you'd been saying you have to trust Christ as your Savior. I do say that. Well, somebody says, but you're saying now that if you keep this, you'll be saved. Yes, but let's follow through on this. Do you remember what the Lord said? It's not the hearers of the law that are justified, but the doers of the law. Paul said in Romans 2.13, "...for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers." Now, if you can honestly say, I do this, but I'll have to say before you answer, I don't want you to find yourself on the horns of a dilemma here, I remind you that God contradicts you. You know what God says to you about this? And I could give you several passages of Scripture, but Paul says in Galatians 2.16, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, for by the faith of Jesus Christ even we've believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You just can't measure up to it, friends, that's all. It'd be impossible for you to keep the law for what the law could not do. That's the reason God sent the Holy Spirit to enable you to live. You just can't take the law, bare knuckle, and keep it. Now, if this lawyer had been honest, which he was not, and if you are listening today and think you're saved by works, let me ask you to be very honest about this. Now, suppose this lawyer had been honest. He would have said this, "'Master, I've sincerely tried this. I have tried to love God with all my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind. I've tried to love my neighbors myself, but I don't measure up to it. I'm not keeping that. I'm not living up to it. I've miserably failed. And I have therefore not received eternal life. I'm a hard legalist. I do not have the modus operandi by which I can live. And the law has just revealed all my weakness and my failure. It hasn't saved me at all. But you see, he adopted this evasive method, and he raised an argument. And he does what that squid in the ocean does. You know what that squid, when he's being attacked, when he's losing an argument, he squirts an inky substance into the water. I had a man one time, he had been married twice and divorced twice. Well, he's married three times because he was then living with his third wife. And you know what his question was? He said, where did Cain get his wife? You know what I felt like asking him? Where'd you get yours? Actually, the big problem is not where Cain got his wife. 
The question is, where'd you get yours? And to the one who doesn't have one, where are you going to get yours? That's the immediate question, you see. Now, Christ gave him an answer to this question, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a simple story. It's a familiar story, and it's redundant to tell it. But we're studying the Bible, and we're going to have to look at it, and maybe we'll get something out of it that may be new today. Will you follow me? And Jesus answering said, I'm reading at verse 30, "...a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead." Now notice, "...and by chance..." There came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, let me interrupt by saying this. I do not know this. This man that's a lawyer was obviously a Levite, a scribe, one who'd studied the Mosaic Law. It could be he was the Levite. Our Lord would not have marked him out, of course. But he may have squirmed at this point. I am of the opinion this was very personal to this man. But be that as it may, likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, notice verse 33, "...but a certain Samaritan..." as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, that is, the good Samaritan saw this poor man that fell among thieves, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise." Now, will you look at this just a moment or two with me? First of all, let me say that years ago, Dean Brown of Yale said that the three classes of men that are brought before us here represent three philosophies of life. The thieves, for instance, their philosophy of life is what you have is mine. That's socialism or communism. And the priests and the Levites, their philosophy of life is, what I have is mine. Now, that's individualism, may I say rugged individualism, individualism that's gone to seed. It takes the philosophy of let the world be damned. I intend to get mine. It's godless capitalism. And then there's the Good Samaritan, and his philosophy is, what I have is yours. 
That is a Christian philosophy of life. That is, what I have is yours if you need it or if I can help you. And you see, socialism is what you have is mine. And that is just a little different. There are those that try to talk about Christian socialism. They just happen to be two philosophies. Now, I want to give you a new approach to these. I'd like to identify these individuals in our contemporary society today. In other words, I want to follow my usual pattern of bringing it right down to the nitty-gritty, right down where we live, and that's exactly what our Lord intended for us to do. Now, there was a certain man that fell among thieves, we are told here. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. That's humanity. That's the race that's come from Adam. Mankind, you see, came from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is the place where they approached God. Jericho was the cursed city. And humanity, you see, fell. And humanity found itself helpless and hopeless, unable to save itself. Dead in trespasses and sins. This man was half dead. And then he fell among thieves. Well, that's the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And our Lord, you remember, said, All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. And you remember he said, when they came out after him. Why do you come out against me as a thief? I've been with you. The devil is a thief. And our Lord was crucified between two thieves. Quite interesting, isn't it? Then a certain priest, we're told, went that way, and he passed by on the other side. He represents ritualism and ceremonialism. Ritualism and ceremonialism can't save you at all. Someone has said that the reason that the priest passed by on the other side is that he saw that the man had already been robbed, so he just went by on the other side. Ritualism and ceremonialism, friends, it can't save you at all. And then there was that Levite that came by, and he went by on the other side. That's legalism. Ritualism and ceremonialism and legalism can't save you at all. Well, what about this, a certain Samaritan? Who is that certain Samaritan? My friend, that certain Samaritan is Christ, the one who told the parable, the one who gave it. When the ritualism and ceremonialism couldn't do anything for man and legalism couldn't, Religion couldn't help man. He came, and he's able to bind up the brokenhearted. He's able to take the lost sinner, half dead, dead in trespasses and sins, and he's the one that's able to help. Now, there is a very practical application for us today. Any person you can help is your neighbor. doesn't mean the man lives next door to you, because generally he's as well off as you are, and the chances are that you need his help. But any person you can help is your neighbor and anyone who needs Christ today, for he is the good Samaritan and needs the gospel. We have a great deal of talk today about getting the gospel out, but we don't make much of an effort. 
It's like the little boy. I say little boy. He was a young fellow courting a girl. He wrote her a letter. She lived out in the country. And he said to her, I'd climb the highest mountain for you. I'd swim the deepest river for you. I'd cross the widest sea for you. I would go across the burning desert for you. And if it doesn't rain next Wednesday, I'll be over to see you. May I say to you, a great many today make that kind of a commitment to Christ. May I say to you, a world today is like the man that fell among thieves, and he needs our help. He needs Christ. Christ is the only one. You see, Christ can not only rescue us from drowning, but he can teach us to swim. And there are three systems in the world today, and I think there are only three that attempt to reach man today with what is known as religion. They see man drowning, and ritualism and formalism says to man, swim, brother, swim. (laughs) But he can't swim. He's drowning. And legalism and liberalism, they push a cross toward the man and say, hang on, brother, but he can't hang on. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shower, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Christ lifted me, my friend. And that's the message of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm just going to have just a moment or two to get in the story of Martha and Mary to finish this chapter. Verse 38, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet, heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bitter, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I wish I could go into a great deal of detail. We'll come to this same story in the Gospel of John, and I will then. You see, it was Martha's house, but the town belonged to Mary. Mary had done her bit, and it gave her time to sit at Jesus' feet. Martha's a dear soul. Thank God for her. They wouldn't have had any dinner if it hadn't have been for her. But she got so busy, you see. She was in a hurry. She got frustrated. She reached for this pan and then thought it wouldn't be big enough, then reached for the other one, and the pan up on the top shelf fell off. And I tell you, that was too much for her. And she came walking out of the kitchen and said something which she wouldn't have said under normal conditions. And our Lord very gently said to her, said, Mary has chosen the best part. And my frustrated, confused friend today, are you at that corner of life where you don't know which way to turn, then for goodness sake, sit down. (laughs) Sit at Jesus' feet. And a great many folk are taking time out every day to sit at his feet as we look at his Word and see what he 
has to say. And it'll help you with your housework. It'll make you a better dishwasher. You'll sweep the floors cleaner. And you can dig a ditch better. And you can mow the lawn better. And you can study a lesson better. And you can work at the office better. And you can drive your car better. You can do everything better if you'll just take a little time, friend, to sit at Jesus' feet. Mary took the best part. Now shall we turn to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'd like to read this first verse to get us into the atmosphere of this chapter. In fact, the first three verses. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I've read, actually, the first four verses of this particular section. This, by the way, is, I think, a very important section that we're in right now. It deals with prayer, and actually it deals with prayer as you'll find it nowhere else in the Gospels. Now, it may sound similar to another section but it's not at all. fact of the matter is, this little section here, a great many feel like it just doesn't fit here. It's an insertion, that it's a sort of an intrusion in the chronological account of the ministry of Christ. Well, you can't fit it in to a particular place here. I do not think that's essential. But as we come to this chapter, we see that this first verse suggests many interesting implications. You see, the reason his disciple wanted to know how to pray was because he saw Christ pray and he heard him. You see, it was the custom of our Lord to retire alone to pray. That was a habit of his. And this disciple saw him, evidently overheard him, and a desire was born in his heart to pray like Christ prayed. And do you know, friends, that the Lord Jesus is right at this moment at God's right hand, and he's our great intercessor, and it's still a very good thing to ask him to teach us to pray. I think that's a very appropriate petition for many of us to make. Lord, teach us to pray. There are many times in your experience, as I'm sure it's been in mine, I haven't known how to pray, I haven't known what to say. And you just say, my father, <laughs> and that's enough. He knows and he understands. Now, this man here, he was not asking just how to pray. He gave them that in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not asking for a technique or a system or an art form or a ritual. It's not how to pray, but teach me to pray. Not how to do it, but to do it. They wanted to pray as he prayed. You know, many folks say their prayers. It's sort of 
an amen to tag on to the end of the day when you put on your pajamas. I was brought up in a home in which I never heard prayer and never saw a Bible. And the first that I ever engaged in prayer, I went as a boy to a conference, and I stayed in a dormitory where the one in charge got the boys together for prayer. And everybody had to put on his pajamas and come, and we had prayer together. And you know, I got the impression at the very beginning that the thing to do was to pray when you put on your pajamas and that you couldn't pray any other time. In other words, your pajamas were sort of your prayer clothes because I'd never seen it done any other way than that. But frankly, we need someone today to teach us to pray. We need that. Not to just say our prayers, but to really get through to God. And you notice he says, as John also taught his disciples, and that's a bird's eye view of John, is it not? It's an unexpected glimpse into the life of this man. It's a sort of a farewell look at him because he'll not be before us again. This is the last picture that's taken of him. And what do we have? John was a man of prayer. They said, teach us just like John prayed. Is anybody going to say that about you or about me? All great servants of God have been men of prayer. And today, the barren life of Christians and the deadness in the church today is the result of prayerless lives. That's the problem today. Now, he gives them here what may sound to you like the so-called Lord's Prayer. But I believe that Christ didn't intend it to become the thing I hear in public service today. It's not a stilted form, and it's not for a public service. This was to be spontaneous. It was personal. This disciple asked, you see. It's to be like a conversation. And don't misunderstand me. I don't believe in conversational prayer where you meet in a group. But I think that when you and I go alone, we just should talk to God. After all, he's my father, and I'm his son. He knows me, and I don't think he wants me to put on airs and assume an unnatural voice and try to use some flowery language. I think he just wants me to talk like Vernon McGee talks. He doesn't want me to be wordy. I get so weary of hearing these wordy prayers today, and I think that sometimes maybe God says, turn him off. Turn the dial. I've heard that fellow say that before. In fact, he says it all the time. You know, the greatest prayers in Scripture are brief prayers. The briefest prayer is, Lord, save me. And it was said by Simon Peter. And let's look at a few things in the prayer. First part's worship, God's honor. The kingdom is God's will on earth. And the Prayer is the privilege of the redeemed. You couldn't pray for God's kingdom without knowing what it involves. It means putting down of evil. It means putting up of the good. It means God's will in your life. There must be a desire for that. You can mouth these words, but there should be something back of it. And I'm not talking now to the unsaved. I personally... Do not think that this prayer is given for the lost. This is a prayer for the saved. There is a prayer for the unsaved, and it's, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, 
And actually, he doesn't even need to pray that prayer. It's simpler than that. You do not have to beg God to do something that he already is doing, to be something that he already is. God is merciful, and he's able to extend mercy to you, and he wants to extend mercy to you. You don't have to beg him to save you. He will save you if you'll come to him. We have here a prayer, part of it, for physical provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Then he puts something down here that I can't measure up to. I may be wrong, but I don't think you can either. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that's indebted to us. Do you forgive everyone? My friend, if God forgave us on the same basis that you and I forgive, we'd never be saved. Here's the standard for us. Ephesians 4.32, "...and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. God forgave us before we were forgiving, and it was when we were yet without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You do not have to beg God to save you. He wants to save you. You don't have to struggle except the salvation he holds out to you. Now, if you're a child of God, it may be that you today need to pray a prayer like this and make you a man or a woman of prayer. That's what he wants to make of you. We don't need more preachers. We don't need more churches. And frankly, I don't think we need more missionaries. We need more people that know how to pray. And he's not through with prayer. Notice here he gives a parable, and only Luke gives us, and this is a tremendous one. When we get to the 18th chapter, we'll have another one. And my, what a different light this reveals about prayer. Now, notice this. And this is a parable that is a little different than the other parables that we've had. It's a parable, actually, by contrast. And we're going to see that when we get to the 18th chapter. But let me just look at this one. He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. Now, let me bring it up to date. Suppose here in Southern California, where we have many visitors that come to see us from back in the East, you know, and especially relatives. And here is a man and his wife. They have their children, and his mother-in-law writes that she's going to visit him. And so she says that she'll be in by the middle of the afternoon on a certain day. That day comes, and they decide that when the mother-in-law gets there, that they'll take her out for dinner. <laughs> and so they wait, and the middle afternoon comes, and they don't hear from the mother-in-law, and she doesn't arrive. And it gets on into the evening, and finally they get a call. And she said that they've had car trouble and that it'll be late in the night before they get there, at least by 11. 
Well, the stores are all closed by then, and they think, well, they'll certainly eat before they come to see them. And so, lo and behold, 11 o'clock comes, and they're still not there. One o'clock comes, and they drive up. Well, sir, they go out, the man to meet his mother-in-law, and he, of course, casually says, well, I guess you all have had your dinner. She said, no, we were in such a big hurry and had so much trouble we didn't stop. And he says, my, I don't have anything in the house. So she said, well, we sure are hungry, and you know how mother-in-laws are. So he wonders what he's going to do. So he's got a good neighbor next door, and he goes next door, and he knocks on the door. And the neighbor says, who is it this time of the morning? And he says, well, I'm your neighbor next door. Oh, he says, what do you want? So well, I want to borrow some bread and meat or whatever you've got to eat. Oh, he says, well, in the morning you're not starving to death. I'm in bed. My children are in bed. Go on home. And this fellow said, you don't know my mother-in-law. And so what does he do? I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he'll rise and give him as many as he needeth. The man says, you don't know my mother-in-law. Brother, you get up, and he pounds on the door. So the fellow gets up and gives him what he's asking for, you see. Now, this is the parable of contrast. Listen to this now. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that seeketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. My friend, do you think God is asleep? Do you feel like that he's gone to bed when you pray and you can't get him up? You feel like he doesn't want to answer your prayer? My friend, God wants to answer your prayer. And God will answer your prayer. And that's exactly what he's saying here. It's a wonderful thing, by the way. It teaches the very opposite, you see, of what you might think that this parable teaches. It's a parable of a contrast, not by comparison. You do not have to storm the gates of heaven. You do not have to knock the door of heaven down. God's not reluctant to hear you, friend. He wants to answer your prayer, he says, before they call, I'll answer them. God wants to hear and answer your prayer. Well, somebody says, but he doesn't hear an answer. Well, maybe you ought to get the message, friend. He's telling you no. Our problem is we don't like to take no for an answer. He always hears and answers the prayers of those that are his own. But he says no most of the time. He does to me. He says, you're not praying the thing that's best for you. And I've learned over the years that the best answer that God's ever given me to some of the requests I've made to him has been no. I prayed as a young preacher for God to open up a certain door to a certain church that I wanted to go to. And I told him to open the door, and I was asked to candidate. And the eldest met and wanted to call me as pastor of the church. And then all the machinery in the church, the political bigwigs, they shut the door. They said that I couldn't come there because I'm no church politician, and that was a strategic church in that day. And I just went to the Lord and cried about it and told him how he let me down, you know. And I'm ashamed of myself today because I told him that. I've asked him to forgive me for saying it. He didn't let me down. You know what he said? He said, no. He says, my child, that place is not the best place for you 
I have something better for you. And you know he did? And he answered my prayer. He said, no. And that was the best answer that could be given. You don't have to storm the gates of heaven. My friend, God hadn't gone to bed. The door there is wide open. He says, knock, seek, ask. Take everything to God in prayer. This is wonderful. Then listen to this. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that's a father, will he give him a stone? Now, make sure he's your father, you know, to as many as received him. To them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more, unless just simply believe in his name. Just believe in the Lord Jesus, that he died for you, and that he rose again for your justification to make you a son of God, and you've been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, and you're a son of God, and you can go to him and you can say, Father. And if you ask your father for bread, he wouldn't give you a stone. Or if you ask a fish, will he, for a fish, give him a serpent? Can you imagine a father that would do that? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And he told them at that time to ask for the Holy Spirit. The best I can tell, they never did ask for it. And a little later on, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. They needed the Spirit of God in those intervening days. Then on the great day of Pentecost, he came and baptized them into the body of believers, put them in Christ. And then they were filled on that day with the Holy Spirit. And the filling is something that all of us need. All believers have been baptized into the body of Christ. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, we've been all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, he has this incident here. We have it in Matthew. In Matthew, it brings out the notion of the unpardonable sin, so-called. There is no unpardonable sin today. But if you'll notice, but he was casting out a demon. It was dumb. came to pass when the demon was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. Some of them said, He casteth out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. And he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out demons through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out demons... No doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, it's among them in the presence of the person of the king who had the credentials of the king. Then he gives this, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. And that's a very important verse for this nation that we live in. There are those that want to disarm us today. There are ones that and you need to look very carefully at these people today that 
don't want us to have an army or the atom bomb and want us to get rid of all the gases. Of course, these things are terrible, the gases and the bombs. But you see, a strong man armed keepeth his palace. They're wicked men abroad. Here it was Beelzebub, Satan abroad. The enemy, and as long as there's an enemy, and this nation has an enemy, as long as there is, we do well to be armed. I wish we didn't have to be. I never cared about wearing a uniform. I never liked it. Tell the truth, I hated a uniform. But I tell you, there is a period in your life when you need to wear one for the sake of your country. I disagree with the philosophy of the present hour today because a strong man arm keepeth his palace and his goods are in peace. We had a great deal of discussion whether a man should have a gun in his home. I say he should have. A strong man arm keepeth his house. If the enemy knows that he can't cross the threshold of my home and hurt my loved one without paying a terrible price for it, he won't come over the threshold. I'd like for him to know it, too. Then you have the worthlessness here of so-called self-reformation. We've had that before in Matthew, the unclean spirit that went out of a man, and the man was empty. The haunted house. That's the condition of a lot of these people today that think they lead a good life. They're just like a haunted house. And then he tells them about the sign of the prophet Jonah. That was the sign for the day in which he was. And that sign was resurrection, of course, for that's what that teaches. Then we have that which we've had before in both Matthew and Mark, the parable of the lighted candle, and I'll not even deal with it in this study. And he denounces woes again upon the Pharisees. We had those in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And now the Lord denounces woes upon the lawyers. He was hard on the lawyers, was he not? And so we have that, and that closes this chapter here. Verse 45, Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. You know, it's one thing to tell somebody else what to do. It's another thing to do it yourself. That's the thing that we preachers have to be so careful about, is to make sure we're not preaching something that is not a part of our own experience. And that is what our Lord is talking about here.